If you have your Bibles, and I trust and hope that you do, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. As you're turning there, I was thinking through how we are ending our time in the book of Daniel. And I was thinking about the experience that I'm sure many of you have had. I know that our church is filled with musicians our church is filled with people who enjoy working out, people who enjoy playing sports, people who enjoy going rock climbing. And if you've encountered that world in one way, shape, or form with um, any sense of longevity, you know the experience of doing something for long enough that you develop calluses that enable you to continue doing that. If you Play guitar, for instance. Uh, you, you'll be playing, you're pressing down on these metal strings that when you begin playing guitar, it hurts like crazy. Uh, I remember when I started playing guitar, I just decided to push through the painful phase as fast as I could, so my fingers were literally bleeding as I was rehearsing and practicing and trying to get better. And, and now I have developed, they're a little bit softer now because I don't play guitar as often these days, but I have developed calluses that if you took uh, a, a, like a, a needle um, that you would use thread needle to, to sew something up, if you took a needle and tried to shove it into my finger in that callus, it wouldn't go through because of using that part of my finger over and over and over and over again. Same thing happens if you work out long enough, you develop calluses where you're gripping the bar, or maybe calluses on your fingers from where you're um, holding you know, a, a handle on rock climbing. The reason why I was thinking through that reality is we have been in prophecy for so long, and specifically prophecy about the end times, for so long that I have a concern and a caution for us this morning that maybe we are developing a callus around this idea of the perils of the Christian life and the suffering that is to come. We can become desensitized to the hardships of the Christian life. We've heard of the sufferings of believers over and over and over again, Sunday after Sunday. It feels like we're experiencing the exact same reality of God's people about to experience suffering. And as we do over and over and over again, we might become desensitized to it, less moved by it, maybe even a little bit hardened to it, where we hear, well, we're going to suffer. We hear, well, there's going to be persecution. We go, yeah, we know. Instead of feeling deeply the reality of what is to come. So the question facing us this morning in our text is how will we, as the people of God, endure in the days when evil is at its worst? How will we endure in the end, in the very last and most severe period of suffering, that is to come. Will we endure? And if so, how will we endure? That is our question. And I believe our text answers that question so powerfully this morning. So Daniel chapter 12, verses one through four, I want to read them and ask God's blessing on our time together. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will go to and fro and knowledge will increase. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for our study through the book of Daniel and how every Lord's Day, it just seems like there is a fresh reality to your sovereignty in our trials, in our hardships, in our suffering, and in our pain. And yet again, 
This Lord's Day, we are reminded from these verses that you will rescue, that you hear us, that you care, that you love us, that you will bring about deliverance. Maybe it's not the way that we would want to be delivered, but you have promised deliverance nonetheless. And so, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning, not because of any merit of our own, not because of our own goodness or our own effort, but sheerly by your own grace. I pray that you would be pleased to enable us not only to understand these verses, but then to live them out, to be changed by these verses, to be radically affected by these verses, to be prepared to be built up, to be encouraged, to be comforted, grant all of these realities to happen. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We come hopeful and expectant to your word this morning, and we long to feast on your truth in these moments. So be our guide, be our help. And Jesus be exalted. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to walk through these verses and then I want to ask the question, so what? And there are only four verses. We've been covering a lot of verses at one time over the last couple of sermons in chapter 11. But we're going to slow down. We're going to take this last chapter in two parts. And our first section in verses 1 through 4 deals with a continuing of what was said in chapter 11. Chapter 11 brought us from Cyrus all the way to the Antichrist. It's the longest prophecy in all the Bible as far as time is concerned. And we have a reality here in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now at that time, so that time we are told, we're given the time marker of what is being spoken of here by the angel to Daniel. At that time, in the time of the tribulation, in the time of the end, in the time of the great tribulation, the back half the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. You remember Daniel's 70th week in chapter nine. We saw the 70 weeks of Daniel. We've seen 69 of those weeks completed. And we have one last week, which is a period of seven years that is left to happen when Antichrist rules and reigns. When God's judgment is poured out, it is referred to in the Old Testament as a time of Jacob's trouble, because this is a time where God is working on his people uh, the Jews, it's a time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time of great distress. It's a time of the day of the Lord is another phrase that's used over and over again in the Old Testament to speak of this time when God will reckon with his people and will bring them to a place of repentance. So we have our time marker. In fact, you remember the chapters and verses were added much, much later. They're not inspired. They're not inerrant. They're not um, just uh, a part of what Daniel was writing. Daniel just wrote a scroll down. And so this would continue. This is one of those places where the chapter and verse division actually isn't helpful because it just continues after the prophecy given of the Antichrist in the end of chapter 11. It continues at that time during the great tribulation, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand. Michael will stand. Just write down Revelation chapter 12, Daniel 12, Revelation 12, they go together. This uh, is spoken of in Revelation 12 of the time when Michael will stand. He will fight in heaven. He will cast Satan down and then he will go down to the earth and protect the people of God, protect the Jews, protect Israel. This is uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 details the war that happens in heaven in this last, these last days, this last period of time. And then verse 13 and 14 describe God delivering his people, bringing them out into a place of deliverance and nourishment and being protected in the places, as we read in chapter 11, verse 41, in Edom, Moab, and in Ammon. So we have Michael, as we saw earlier in uh, chapter 10, we have Michael, the great prince, the angel that is really sent to guard and protect Israel. He's done that in the past. He did that during the days of Cyrus, and he's doing that here in chapter 12, verse 1, in the end times. The question is, why is it needed? Why does Michael need to jump in 
and to protect and to defend. And the reason why is because, as we're told in verse 1, there will be a time of distress such as never has happened since there was a nation until that time. This will be the most severe time of persecution, suffering. This is so intense, unlike any other period of intensity that has come before. Matthew chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 24, rather. Again, just for sake of time, I'm going to give you the reference, but you know this. We read it last Lord's Day, Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 is the Olivet Discourse as well. And Jesus describes this period. He speaks in verse 15 of the abomination of desolation that is yet to come. So there's an abomination of desolation that Antiochus Epiphanes did, and then there's an abomination of desolation yet to come. It is still future that the Antichrist will do. Again, if you want to know what Antichrist is going to look like, look, like, look at Antiochus Epiphanes. He's going to look similar, but much, much worse. And Jesus connects Daniel to the end times, just as we've seen in our study. He speaks of the great tribulation, which is also spoken of in Revelation, which is also uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. It's also spoken of here in chapter 12, verse 1. This is the time period of the great tribulation. These moments are the darkest in all of human history. Just think of the moments that you know of in human history in the past that are dark, are devastating, are evil, and these moments in verse 1 will be so much more intense, so much more evil. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that unless they were shortened, everyone would be obliterated. Everyone would die. They're so severe. Nothing like this has ever happened before. John Lennox says it this way. It is hard to get one's mind around this grim statement. The time of Antiochus was horrendous as was the period around the later fall of Jerusalem. The Holocaust beggars description, but Daniel indicates that there is even worse to come at the time of the end. In our study of Revelation, we saw the devastation that will be poured out on the earth during that last three and a half years. Why is it so bad? Why are these days so awful that our to come in Daniel's 70th week. They're so awful because God's judgment is being poured out. We saw all those judgments in Revelation. Also, and the Antichrist is ruling and reigning and bringing severe persecution, such that Zechariah 13 verse 8 tells us only one-third of the Jewish population will survive because they will be destroyed. And in the midst of all of that, there will be a rescue. End of verse one. And at that time, your people, that's Daniel's people, the Jews around him, the Jews that will be in the end times, that will be alive during Daniel's 70th week, that did trust in the Antichrist to bring about peace. They said, he's our Messiah. Antichrist, Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is the same word in Hebrew of Messiah, the anointed one. The Jews will look at the Antichrist and say, he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's the one that we've been longing for. And they will worship him. They will exalt him. They will place all of their trust in him. And then he will commit that abomination of desolation. They will say, we trusted the wrong Messiah. And they will be shown the scriptures of the one and only Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And they will turn and trust in him. They will Follow him. The tribulation period is all about God reclaiming his people to fulfill his promises and prophecies to them, to give them salvation, to give them a land of peace and a kingdom that will never end. And so he's going to rescue them. He's going to rescue them. Who is he going to rescue? All of those who are found with their names written in the book. All of the believing Jews whose names are in the book of life will be rescued. We saw in Revelation, in our study of Revelation, that 144,000 Jews are rescued, and the rest of the third that are described in Zechariah 13, 8 are rescued. Romans eleven twenty six says that all Israel will ultimately be saved in the end times because they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Their name was written in the book of life, and they will not be destroyed. Now, not in a temporal sense, not physically, because many of them will be destroyed physically, but they will not be destroyed eternally. They will be delivered and rescued 
eternally because their name is in this book. End of verse one. This book is described in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter four, verse three, Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, Malachi chapter three, Philippians chapter four, Revelation chapter 20 and 21, the Lamb's book of life. I love the way Dale Ralph Davis describes this. In a time when God's people will be viewed as trash, scum, and faceless protoplasm, they are assured that their names are known and precious to God. That's why Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says, In those days, in the days of the great tribulation, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Zechariah 13, verse 1, many will be saved. Their iniquities will be blotted out in the end times. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And this is the time of Jacob's trouble, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be delivered from it. Again, not removed out of it. These believing Jews will have to survive through it and some will survive alive. The majority will be killed. And that's why there's a spiritual rescue that's seen here. They will not be deceived by the Antichrist, even though he tries his hardest to deceive them. They will not lose their faith as they're limping their way even to death. They will not recant. They will not renounce. They will be preserved to the very end. There is a physical rescue that will involve some who will be preserved alive. But there is a greater rescue even than that, which is a rescue for your faith, that your faith will not fail even when it is tried and tested at the hardest level. Verse 2, because many will die during that time. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, sleep is a metaphor for death, for the death of believers. For believers, when we die, it is as if we are sleeping, not because we're unconscious to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So we know that immediately upon our death, we are in the presence of the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have that hope. So why use the metaphor of sleep? This is what Jesus says about Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter five, that she's only sleeping. She's dead, but she's only sleeping. Why does he say that? Because for Jesus, it is as easy to raise somebody from the dead as it is for you and me to wake somebody up from their sleep. And so it's a metaphor for death. It's described here as sleep. Those who are asleep, uh, asleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Many of those who are asleep. When we die, our soul or spirit, there are two divisions of who we are. We have a soul. We have an immaterial part of us. And that part will live forever. That part can never die. And so when we die, that part of who we are is instantly ushered if we are believers into the presence of the Lord, if we are non-believers out of the presence of the Lord in judgment. Our bodies stay here. They remain here in the dust of the ground. And on that last day, this is specifically being described here at the end of that time of tribulation as Jesus comes back to establish his millennial kingdom and to give that kingdom to the Jewish people their bodies will be raised, their soul put back into their bodies, their bodies glorified, never to die again. They will awake to everlasting life. Why does verse 2 say, many of those who sleep? Because there's a split here. There's a first resurrection that happens with only believers. We saw this in our study of Revelation chapter 20. If you remember, at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of that period of seven years, when Antichrist is defeated, when Satan is thrown into the abyss and is chained there and is unable to come out and deceive the world for a thousand years, that period of the millennial kingdom, right before Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, we were told that the souls that were slain for their testimony and their stand for the Lord during that great tribulation, they were raised from the dead and they ruled and they reigned with Christ. That's the description that's happening here. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, those who were rescued even through death, they will, bring, they will be brought into the kingdom alive. But it happened in two parts. You remember in Revelation 20, a thousand years, non-believers, their body still lies in the ground. 
And then at the end of that thousand years, they are raised at the great white throne judgment. Their soul is put back in their body. They are given a glorified body as well. Believers and non-believers alike will live forever. It's just a matter of your eternal destiny. Where will you live forever? But believers and non-believers alike will both receive glorified bodies that will never die. And so the many in verse 2 are the believers, the Jewish believers who had died during the great tribulation. And they will be brought to everlasting life to rule and to reign with Christ. But the others at the end of the millennial kingdom will be raised, will be given a glorified body, but will not receive everlasting life, but everlasting contempt. Everlasting contempt. By the way, this is the very first time in the Old Testament that the resurrection is spoken of for both the righteous and the unrighteous. I have a list of eight passages that are in the Old Testament that deal with the resurrection for believers. But this is the very first time that we see in the Old Testament the resurrection also applies to non-believers as well. Everyone will be raised in the end. There's a different time frame for the resurrections, but everyone will be raised. Many will be raised, verse 2. And then there's a split, but the others. But the others, three of the saddest words in the entire Bible. The others will be raised to reproach. Your Bible might say to disgrace. Literally, it's in the plural, to disgraces or reproaches. This is the shame that they will experience on that last day. As God shows them, you have rejected me, and here is the punishment for your rejection. We know, based off of verse 2 and the entirety of the Bible, that there are only two eternal destinies, two possible eternal destinies. And that should make us long to see people in our lives who do not know Christ. It should make us long to see them turn to Christ, to share with them. And that's exactly what happens in verse 3. Those who have insight during that period of great tribulation will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. They'll shine brightly because they have insight. They have the wisdom of God through the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to evangelize and to share Christ, to share the gospel. And they will lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. This is, again, specifically during the Great Tribulation. There will be many believers. Remember, we saw that in our study of Revelation, how amazing it was that at every turn in that book, when there was judgment being declared, when there was this massive amount of just devastation happening right after that, there would be this respite that would say, but don't worry, God's still working. He's still bringing redemption. He's still reconciling people to himself. Even in the end, people are still getting saved. And here we see the way that that's happening. One of the ways that that's happening. We saw the two witnesses that are going to do that. The 144,000 that are going to do that. They're going to share Christ even though it might mean their impending death. These people in verse three are influencing others to go on walking in righteousness and they're assisting them in remaining faithful in the pressure of those days. These people give discernment about what God's people are facing. They're telling them, this isn't because of your sin. Your sin was thrown on Christ. This is because of the sin around us and this judgment is being used by God to bring us to him. They encourage and plead with the remnant to remain faithful in the time of suffering and to bolster the faith of others so that they would not deny in such a severe time. You've experienced that before, right? When you're walking through a trial, you're walking through a difficulty and you feel alone and then that person steps into your life and says, I'm here with you. Sometimes it's just them sitting with you in silence with an arm around you, weeping with you, and you feel, I'm not alone. Sometimes it's words that they say. Sometimes it's a prayer. They sit with you and they pray. And as they are praying and you are taken into the throne room of God, you just feel in that moment the peace that surpasses all 
comprehension. And you think, you know what? This is so terrible, but I know I'm going to make it because I've got somebody with me and they're walking with me. They're helping me. They're encouraging me. That's what's happening in verse three. In 1540, there were two Scottish men, Alexander Kennedy and Jerome Russell, who were condemned to burn at the stake for their faith. As they plotted to the execution site, Russell noticed some signs of despair in his companion. And so he encouraged him by saying, brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. The pain that we are to suffer is short. And it shall be light, but our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Therefore, let's strive together to enter into our master and savior by the same straight way which he had strawed before us. Death cannot destroy us because it already destroyed him and then he destroyed it. And we suffer for his sake. And so they walked onto the stake, bolstered in faith. What a help it is to have somebody beside you in the midst of a trial. Daniel must be thinking, okay, so what am I supposed to do? You're telling me about the end. You're telling me that in this period of three and a half years, the back half of the seven-year period, you're telling me that things are going to be so bad, so awful. God will rescue his people. Michael will protect and defend. People will get saved. People, when they die, believers, when they die, will ultimately be raised. What am I supposed to do with this? Because Daniel knows he's not going to experience this. He's in his 80s. He's not even going back to Israel. He's staying in Persia. He's fine to die contented that his people are making their way back to Israel. So he must be thinking, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do with this? Verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. Conceal these words and seal up the book. Literally, conceal is to close up. You wrote the scroll down. Now close up the scroll and seal it. Preserve it. Make sure that this is preserved for generations to come. Seal these prophecies up. They're going to happen, just not yet. This shows us the gracious heart of God. God loves his people. He's concerned about protecting them. So he says, I've given you this vision for you to write it down, to seal it up so that it will exist and be preserved all the way up until the end. So that when people are in that period of great tribulation, they will read this book. They will know what's happening. They'll be encouraged by this book to go out and be those lights and to share the gospel. And then the end of verse four. Many will go to and fro, and knowledge will increase. This is a very challenging verse in Hebrew to, to understand. There's a lot of different interpretations about this. The word going to and fro, different translations would translate that differently. You have roaming, uh, those who are walking around. Some people would say that it means that there's going to be a period of darkness where people walking around as if in darkness, they won't be able to fully understand, fully comprehend. That word for going to and fro is used 13 times in the Old Testament. It refers to Satan roaming the earth, roaming, going to and fro. It refers to God's eyes. Remember, his eyes go to and fro, looking for who he can strongly support. So the idea that to and fro, it reflects thoroughness, that no corner unturned. So what the angel is telling Daniel is seal these words up because in the end, many will be thoroughly looking through them and their knowledge will increase. If you seal this prophecy up, if you seal this book up, in the end, many people will uncover it, will unfold it, will read it. And in reading it, they will be able to see corresponding to the time period that they're going through. Okay, this is exactly what God prophesied. Dale Ralph Davis says, as the Lord's people give diligent attention to this piece of scripture, they will, especially near to the end, have a clear grasp of its meaning. It's immersion 
that brings insight. So immersed into the time of great tribulation, they will see this and go, this is exactly what God's been talking about. Stephen Miller says, as the time of fulfillment draws nearer, the wise will seek to comprehend these prophecies more precisely, and God will grant them understanding. What the angel is telling Daniel is that these things will all become clearer as we get closer to the time, and understanding will be given to those who are going through this time of great tribulation, which will feed into their security. For if they're clear about what may come their way, they are forearmed to face it. So, The message given to Daniel in verses 1 through 4 is abundantly clear. It's for the Jews. It's for the time of the Great Tribulation. It speaks of the hope that they can have even if they were to be killed, which many of them will be, that they will still be raised to everlasting life, that they will be rescued, some physically rescued, some spiritually rescued, all spiritually rescued. And that... There will be people in that time period who will be going around evangelizing, sharing Christ. People will be being saved. But what do we do with this? We read this, we know what it means, and we say, well, we're not in that time period. We're not Jewish as far as being a part of the church, and we're not going to be living then, I mean, maybe we'll die before that happens, this period comes, what are we supposed to do now? And this is where, if I can just pause, just briefly, there is a danger, especially in our circles of evangelicalism, there is a danger when reading the Bible and studying the Bible and preaching the Bible, that we get to a place where we say we have the authorial intent, we know what it means, we line up all the parts with the other parts, we're able to see this means this, this means that, and we get the meaning and we can even explain the meaning. And so often we read that and we go, we got the meaning, we're done. And we walk away. But if the meaning of this text has not gotten deep into our souls to affect us, to change us, to radically transform us, then we've failed to do exactly what preaching is designed to do. Brothers and sisters, the goal of every Sunday, of every Lord's Day, of the preaching of God's word, the goal is not simply and merely to explain the reality of the text and say, now you understand it. The goal every single time we open the Bible is first and foremost to understand it. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? But then the goal is to press through that to say, so now what does that meaning mean for my life? Otherwise, we are in danger of becoming hypocritical because we have knowledge that has puffed us up, but it hasn't changed our heart. And we're in danger then becoming theoretical Christians. We know the truth, but we haven't been changed by it. And if we have not been changed by it, then it has just further hardened our hearts. So brothers and sisters, we need to fight against that sense of, I need to know and understand, and then I'm done. So to do that together with this text, we look at it and we say, okay, we understand it, but so what? This message was given to encourage and comfort God's people and specifically does that by giving them an understanding of their future destiny. Future destiny impacts present discipleship. What I will be one day will mold and shape how I live this day. This is exactly what we're going to look at when we study 1 John chapter 3 this week together. If we know that Jesus is coming back, everyone who has this hope in their heart, fixed on his return, will purify himself just as he is pure. That day, and knowing what's going to happen that day, changes me today. It's what we could call eschatological discipleship. Eschatology, the study of the end times, the eschaton, the last days. Eschatology is the study of the end times and the last days. And so often, so many people in studying eschatology, it doesn't change anything in their practical lives. That's why I'm constantly asking people who are studying eschatology, how is this affecting your marriage? How is this affecting your parenting? Because if it's not, then you are in danger of becoming a hypocrite and a theoretical Christian. So, 
what do these words and their meaning that is so crystal clear mean for us today? I think it means that we should live differently in six different ways. Six different ways to live our lives differently based off of these verses. Number one, we must rest in God's protection. We must rest in God's protection. Michael is going to stand guard over his people in the last days. And guess what? God protects his people today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse two, angels are given to help us. Most often we're unaware of their help, but they're given to help us. We looked at this in our study of chapter 10. Dale Ralph Davis says, there are unseen legions of angels standing behind the wobbly people of God in their darkest troubles. That's happening now. So rest in God's protection. Be comforted by God's protection. Number two, prepare for persecution. Prepare for persecution. It would be so tempting to think, and I've heard people that have read through chapter 12, and they think, well, if this is about the Jewish people during the time of the Great Tribulation, uh, I might already be dead by then. I might already be removed by then. So I don't have to worry about this. And they'd be dead wrong. They'd be dead wrong. Because brothers and sisters, we are told in the scriptures that we are all going to go through persecution and suffering, and we're all told it's going to get worse. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So maybe we don't go through the great tribulation, but through many tribulations, we will go through. There's no exception from this. If you are a believer, this is promised. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. This isn't an alien thing. If they hated the master, they're going to hate the ones that follow him. If they maligned him, how much more so are they going to malign us? Such that Paul says in Colossians chapter one, we're filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Nothing's lacking in salvation in Christ's afflictions. They wanted to do more to him. They hate him. And since he's been removed out of this world, they look at us and they are going to afflict us. Persecution and suffering for Christ is absolutely a reality in the world today. And it's getting worse. More people died for Christ during the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. From AD 33, 33 AD, Jesus' death, to 1900, there were around 14 million believers who were killed. From 1901 to 2000, there were over 26 million believers killed. That's almost doubling from 33 AD to 1900, and now just 100 years. In 2004 alone, over 165,000 believers were killed. Estimates would say that over 300,000 believers will be killed for their faith in 2025. It's going to get worse, and we're not, we're not in the tribulation. We're not in this later days of Daniel's 70th week, and it's just going to get worse. How are we to bear up under this kind of pressure? Well, we need to be prepared for it. We need to know it's coming. We can't be callous to it. We can't be hardened to it. We need to be aware of its reality. But we also need to understand the blessing that is ours in the here and now and beyond. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Blessed are you who are persecuted. When people say all sorts of things against you, you're blessed. Rejoice. Your reward in heaven is great. Luke chapter 6, verse 22, you're blessed when men hate you and ostracize you. James chapter 1, verse 12, you know it. Blessed is the man who perseveres under the trial, because once he's been approved, he will, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So prepare for persecution. Understand that suffering enables us to long for heaven. 
It makes us long and hope for what's to come. Suffering in this life makes us long for the next life. I love the way early church father Ignatius said this. He said, quote, it is not that I want to merely be called a Christian, but I actually want to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have that name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Just let me get to Jesus. So these verses remind us persecution's coming and we need to be prepared for it. Don't get caught by surprise. Don't have some naive thinking that it's going to get better for us or somehow we will be spared. None of us is going to be spared. Get ready for trouble. Get ready for intense persecution. But don't do so pessimistically. That leads to number three. These verses teach us that we should trust in God's rescue. Trust in God's rescue. End of verse one, we have a rescue for the people of God in the later days. And we also have that today. Saints will suffer. Saints will die. In those days, just like they are today, and even worse in those days than they are today. But we don't need to panic. We don't need to be fearful. Deliverance is on the way. And most often that deliverance comes in the form of God strengthening your faith in those moments to persevere to the end through death. And no one can take your soul away from the Lord. Why? Because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name has been recorded in his book. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. He says, Yahweh is just so very godlike. He puts that in quotes. He's so very godlike in this passage. No sooner does he mention unheard of distress than he peppers the text with tokens of our security. It helps immensely to know, among other things, that no church-crushing, saint-smashing regime can remove the names written in the indelible ink of God's book. So prepare for persecution, but trust God will deliver you. And it may be through your death, by your death, but he will deliver you. So we rejoice not in the fact that the persecution is going to lessen or somehow we're going to be removed. We rejoice, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, in the fact that our names are recorded in heaven. Your eternal destiny is secure. Your heavenly citizenship cannot be revoked. I love the way one commentator says it. This is so profound. That a record of heaven with reference to those who are to inherit eternal life should be available is equivalent to saying that God's thoughts for the salvation of his children run all the way back into eternity. And I love this part. He loves to busy himself with their eternal welfare. That's our heavenly father. He loves to busy himself with our eternal welfare. Do you feel like your faith is failing? He loves to busy himself with holding you fast. Do you feel like he is, the, the devil is coming in to destroy you and to remove you and to somehow pull you away from God? God busies himself with your eternal welfare and says, I've given you my spirit as a seal of promise and I'll hold you fast. Count on God to rescue you. Number four, we must hope in the resurrection. We must hope in the resurrection. The empty tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem is our guarantee. This is the biblical hope that we have. This is the assurance that we have. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Why? Because Christ awoke. He's alive, never to die again. He was dead. He conquered death and he lives forever. And he gives that everlasting life to you and to me. But you see there in verse two, that it's only many. It's only many. Not all. Some will be saved and be raised to everlasting life. And some will be raised to everlasting destruction. So my question is, how do we ensure that we get the good resurrection and not the bad one? This is the most important question in the world. 
This is the most important question that anyone will ever ask you. How can you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're headed for the good resurrection and not the bad one, the one that gives you eternal life and not the one that gives you eternal destruction? Can I just ask you, how would you answer that question? There are only two possible eternal destinies. We all will die. We all will be judged. And there's only two places that we will go after that judgment. So how do you know without a shadow of a doubt you're going to be with Christ? You're going to be in everlasting joy, happiness, and bliss. Can I tell you what the worst possible answer to that question is? Here's the worst answer. Because I'm a good person. I try hard. I love people. I'm not as bad as that person. Your goodness, however good you try to be, and probably are. Your goodness isn't perfection. We've all fallen short of being perfect. And perfection is the standard. If you want to do this on your own, perfection is the standard. You have to be perfect. And once you have broken the law, James says, if you break it in one place, you're no longer perfect. And if you're no longer perfect, then there is no way you can use that answer on the last day. I tried. God will graciously, lovingly say, well, were you perfect? And the answer clearly is no. We've all felt guilt. We all felt shame. We all know that we have done things that are wrong. And so therefore, you may have tried, but you're not perfect. And if you're not perfect, then you have no hope of getting to heaven on your own. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say... I've, I've tried this religion stuff. I've tried it. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you were told about Jesus and you started getting plugged into a church and, and you desperately desired to change and to follow the Lord. And so you tried your best to be good. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've tried this religion stuff and it's not working. It doesn't work. It hasn't changed anything. I'm here to tell you amen. Religion doesn't do anything. Religion doesn't change anything. Trying to establish a system of morality, of being better, of trying harder, of good works, will not do anything to change your heart. That's why true believers love Jesus because he did what we could never do. He did the work that we needed to do on our own behalf if we were going to get to God on our own, but he did all of that work for us and said, it's finished, it's done, and I'm giving you a perfect record of all of that work happening, and I'll take your terrible record on myself. You see, it's not about religion. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So how do you know if your name's in the book? That's the answer. Daniel's answer to that question. How do I know that I'm getting the, the good resurrection? How do I know I'm going to heaven? Daniel's answer is your name's in the book. Your name has been written in the book. Notice that's not you doing it. You and I haven't found that book. We don't see that book. We can't get into heaven and write our names in the book. That's God doing the, the job for us. God doing the work for us. And if he has written your name in that book, the next question is, how will I know? I want my name written there. Well, you will know if you're crying out to him by faith. If you trust in him and him alone, and if you see his transforming work in your heart, change your affections, your will, your desires, then you'll know. And if you're here this morning, you say, I don't know if I know. I'm not sure where I stand before God, and I really want my name written in that book. Can I just plead with you? Plead with God. Ask God, say, God, I want my name in that book. I want you. I want my sins forgiven, but more than just sin being forgiven and the penalty be removed, I want you, the one that I've offended. I want you. So we hope in the resurrection. We hope in the resurrection. Number five, these verses tell us that we are to edify and evangelize. Verse three, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse. They'll lead the many to righteousness. The insightful are busy about the business of making disciples. They are the city on the hill. They are letting their light shine in the darkness. And brothers and sisters, as the world gets progressively darker, I hear many Christians ho-hum about that. Very woe is us. Everything looks like it's getting worse. 
And I say, maybe naively optimistic here, but I say, this is awesome. What, what better time than this to be alive? Because if the world's getting darker, then it's going to be that much easier for me to shine brightly. I get to shine as a, a, a lighthouse in the world. And as the world gets darker, let Jesus shine brighter. Finally, number six, we need to treasure God's word. This book is sealed up. And Daniel is told to seal this up so that those who died into it on those, in those last days will have understanding and will go forth with understanding. So do you treasure his word now? Six different ways that these verses impact our lives. Number one, we rest in God's protection. Number two, we prepare for persecution. Number three, we trust in God's rescue. Number four, we hope in the resurrection. Number five, we edify and evangelize. And number six, we treasure God's word. So what I want to ask all of us to do with those six realities, we're going to spend time meditating on the word of God and singing these realities together, encouraging one another with the word of God as we sing. And as we sing, I want to ask you, even now, just think through those six realities and ask yourself, which one of these realities do I struggle the most with and why? What do I struggle the most with and why? Where may God be calling you to respond today? And after we are done singing and we have our benediction, turn to somebody next to you and just say, hey, this is my biggest takeaway from that. From our time in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, this is what I believe God's calling me to do. And maybe you'd say, I don't know what that is yet, but can I hear yours? Because maybe somebody sharing with you will impact your own understanding of how to live these realities out. But let's not remain unaffected by these verses. Let's let these verses change our affections for Christ to place our trust in him. Because when our faith is close to failing, he will hold us fast. And when we feel like we are being tossed around by the waves of this world and the trials and the suffering and the despair that we're going through, he is the ballast in our boat and the sure and steady anchor that holds our faith secure. So let's worship him for those realities today. God, we thank you so much for these verses. We thank you for the book of Daniel that is so practical. It is so relevant. It is so transformative. Even in a, a passage that doesn't even deal with our time period, that deals with something way far in the past and then way far in the future. It still has perfect relevance for us today. So God, we ask that even as we sing, you would confirm these realities to our heart, that we would ask you, are we resting in your protection? Do we feel that we need to do it on our own? Are we prepared for persecution or do we feel like we'll be spared and nothing bad's gonna happen to us? Are we trusting in your rescue or are we trying to rescue ourselves? Do we hope in the resurrection and let the afterlife and what you will do in the afterlife affect our lives today? Do we edify those around us with the word? Do we evangelize the lost? And do we treasure your word today the way that Daniel treasured it and the way that he was called and commanded to seal it up so others may treasure it as well? God, work in our heart today. Work in our hearts in such a way that you, through your spirit, would, would change us, would shape us, even as we sing and confirm these realities to our heart. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.